Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to this ninth episode of Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. I'm Mary Wellesley, a contributor to the paper, and I'm joined, as always, by Irina Dumitrescu, also a contributor to the paper. Hello, Irina. Hello, Mary. In the last episode, we were transported to an Arthurian fairyland, populated by proud knights, magical beings, and wild landscapes. In short, a text that conforms to many of our preconceptions about the Middle Ages. For this episode, we're examining a work that feels strikingly modern, a piece of minutely observed psychological realism about a doomed love affair. Sort of what might happen if Henry James had written poetry set during the Trojan War. We are, of course, talking about Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade. So, Irina, Troilus is a, a story of double sorrow, as we hear in the, the opening um, stanzas of the poem. And unlike some of the other texts that we've been discussing in this series, you can kind of you can summarize the plot quite quite quickly. You know, it's it's a sort of typical boy meets girl rom com with a tragic ending, rom trage, involving a creepy uncle and a wooden horse. Mary, there's no horse. This is already a mistake. It's an implied horse. No. <laughs> Maybe you can give us a bit of an overview. Sure. So um, the story takes place in Troy during the Trojan War. So it's it's in a state of siege, although things in Troy seem pretty normal at the time. Crusade is a widow in Troy, and her father is a seer named Calchas, who basically foresees that Troy will fall to the Greeks. And he defects to the Greek side, leaving her defenseless without any sort of protection or family in the town. At the same time, Troilus, who is one of the King Priam's sons, falls in love with her. And, you know, it's a passionate, romantic, melancholy, painful love. But thankfully, Crusade has a creepy uncle, as you said, Pantherus, who is willing to do absolutely anything to get these two lovers together. And it works. They slowly develop a relationship and then eventually have, you know... They make sweet, sweet love. They do. They do. And but soon, you know, just as they've started to enjoy their love together, Calchas arranges for the Greeks to trade one of their prisoners of war for his daughter because he wants his daughter to be safe and to come over to the Greek side. And she is traded by the Trojans for Antenor, prisoner. And the latter half of the of the story is really about the character's difficulty in dealing with this turn of fate. Uh, which has essentially separated them. They think for a while that they will be able to steer their own destiny and to come back together, and they really fail in that. And Crusade finds some kind of protection. It's not clear if it's love, really, but she finds a man on the Greek side, Diomede, who becomes a kind of you know, servant knight slash protector slash lover. And ultimately, 
Troilus realizes that she no longer loves him and he dies on the battlefield. And her name is besmirched for all time. (laughs) (laughs) A cheery story. Okay, so maybe let's take a little bit of a, a step back. The work is obviously by Geoffrey Chaucer, who I'm sure all of our listeners have heard of. It may have been written for Anne of Bohemia, who was the wife of Richard II. They married in 1382. There's a little moment right at the beginning of the poem where there may be a bit of an oblique compliment to her. It's written in a form called Rhyme Royal, and it seems to be the first kind of major work where he uses this this form, which is a kind of seven-line form. It's a bit like a kind of mini sonnet. So in some ways, this is a bit of a sort of precursor of the sonnet sequences of the 16th century. It works really well for narrative. What's nice about it is it has this kind of A, B, A, B, B, C, C structure. So the point about that You have this kind of little shift within the stanza and we often see this where the Chaucer is is kind of taking the stanza in one direction and then suddenly something happens and, and we have this kind of turn. And in some ways that works really beautifully for a lot of his explorations of the kind of interiority of his characters, which is a sort of central, central thing. So the use of Rhyme Royal, he was, uh, you know, seems to have been the first uh, poet in English to use it in the way that he did. And he kind of indeed popularized it, became very popular in the 15th century. But he was working from a particular source, wasn't he, for this text? He was working from several sources. So at the point when he writes the story, Crusade is already a well-known figure. The earliest version we have is in a 30,000-line-long French poem about the Trojan War, Le Roman de Troyes by Benoit de Saint-Maur. It's from the 12th century. And in this work, we have an early version of, uh, of Crusade. Her name is Briseida. And her story, her love affair with Troilus is, you know, follows the contours that I've just described, but it's really a very brief story. And it's interwoven with the rest of the narrative. There's one thing I want to point out about it, which is that, you know, although Briseida doesn't have an enormous amount of choice about what happens to her, she worries in the actual poem about how women will hate her, ladies will hate her forever. The Trojan women and all women will despise her, and she's done them all wrong. So already in this version of the story, there's this idea that a woman who isn't perfectly true, isn't perfectly faithful, is a spot on all women. She becomes a kind of stick to beat all women with. And that's right there. And there's also a kind of expectation of fame. And that is indeed what happens because um, the character based on her, Griseida, and her different different variations of that name, becomes used in all kinds of stories, Boccaccio, Chaucer, Shakespeare, and so on. We come to Boccaccio, who picks up the story in the 14th century. He's young, he's living in Naples, um, and he writes Il Filostrato. This is around 1335. It's a longer work in nine sections in Ottava Rima, and he really is the one who expands it into a more novel-like story, the more fleshed-out story about the psychological experience of passionate love and its loss. He has Troyolo, Criseida, and Pandaro. They're, you know, Pandaro is a little bit different uh, in this version. Every character is a little bit different, but it's really a substantial work. It's also funny and, and sexy and um, completely worthwhile in its own right. 
Then we, Chaucer comes along, and Chaucer knows Boccaccio's work quite well. I think a lot of people know that uh, the Canterbury Tales is at least partly inspired by the Decameron. He also, you know, takes uh, certain stories from Boccaccio and so on. Uh, the interesting thing is he never cites him. He never actually names his source. He makes up a fake source for Troilus and Crusade, Lolius, whom he blames and cites and so on. But he never actually cites Boccaccio. And, you know, it's worth saying... His use of, of Boccaccio is not mere inspiration. There are large chunks of the poem where he is translating stanza by stanza by stanza. Today we would call that plagiarism. In the Middle Ages, it's absolutely fine. But one of the fun things to do is to sort of look at what he's, the changes he's making, the places where he expands, because he does introduce all of these plot points. His characterization is a bit different. He makes it his own work, even though right till the end, there are sections that still follow Boccaccio quite closely. So, you know, we have this really interesting literary genealogy. And I think, you know, there are many things we could do with that. But one of the points is, Crusade's already, like Gawain, she's already famous in this text. She's already known. She's already got a reputation. Only her reputation is that of, of the woman who betrays. And Chaucer's always playing against that. And I think his audience, you know, whether or not they knew the Boccaccio very well, they would have known that he was working with the source as well. And so what are the, what are the major departures from the Boccaccio, from the, from the kind of main source? I mean, you know, there are, I mentioned there are just some scenes which are, which are new. Chaucer finds different ways to bring the lovers together, for example. There are small but interesting differences, like the fact that Pandarus is a young man who's around Troilus's age or Troilo's age um, in Boccaccio. And he becomes Crusade's creepy older uncle in Chaucer, who also really expands that the role of that character. He makes him into a kind of mage figure. You know, one of the interesting things, and you really read the Middle English closely, is to see how much, how afraid both Crusade and Troilus are in the Middle English. And we'll talk about this a bit, but Chaucer is sketching their psychological portraits quite a bit differently from Boccaccio. And he's also, I think, very interested in understanding Crusade, in giving us, up to a point, insight into her mental processes, insight into who she is, how she reacts to things, and how she makes her decisions, which is interesting because she's supposed to be a bad person. She's supposed to be a bad woman who betrays this perfect man. And he's very invested in that. And then the other big thing is, you know, um, Chaucer translated the Consolation of Philosophy, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, and he introduces this philosophical element into Troilus and Crusade that's not there in the Boccaccio, which which obviously does have reflections, you know, philosophical reflections, but in Chaucer it's really built up. So you have the character sometimes meditating on the nature of free will and predestination, on God's foreknowledge of human action. The issue of consolation is important to Boccaccio, but also to Chaucer. The you know, how can you make someone who is who is sad, who feels that they cannot achieve what they want, or who has lost the greatest joy available to them? How can you help them feel better? So these are sort of the philosophical um, issues, and in a sense, also medical issues that are um, woven throughout um, Chaucer's poem that come out of his own reading and his own education and his own literary activity. 
Thanks for listening to this extract from Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.